0: Over the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing Jesus tell his followers how blessed they are when they live out the characteristics of Jesus himself. But we've also heard there's a great responsibility because as God's people, we need to be living God's way. In the Old Testament, God gave commands that his people needed to follow. And so Jesus now looks at some of those and tells us what's at the heart of these important commands and how they relate to us today. Let's listen from verse 21. Jesus said, "'You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, "'You shall not murder, "'and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. "'But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister "'will be subject to judgment.'" Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery.
1: Good evening, friends. Uh, My name's Mark. It's nice to be back with you. I was away last week uh, with the flu. I'm almost back to uh, full strength. Thank you for your prayers. Um, Before I begin tonight, I do just want to uh, draw your attention to these postcards, which uh, every one of you will have sitting in the chair in front of you, except that is if you're one of the rogue elements sitting in the forbidden section off to the side, you don't get a postcard. You can come and grab one from this side after the service. Uh, this is David Craft. If you don't know him, he's doing an MTS apprenticeship with us this year. And uh, we would like you to take this home and stick it on your fridge or somewhere that you're going to see it regularly so that you can remember to pray for David. That is the best way that you can support him in his training and development this year. But it's also an invitation to consider supporting him financially. You may know that WBC sponsors our interns. We pay for approximately half their salary uh, from our church budget, but then we also ask members of the church to generously support and make up the rest of his salary. And so if that's something that you're in a position to do, we invite you to follow the QR code and the link there and go to those pages. Giving through uh, that program is tax deductible, if that's relevant to you as you consider that. Anyway, that's enough admin, let me pray, and then uh, we're gonna have a think about Jesus's confronting words here. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Uh, but we are often people who live in darkness, and so your light can feel uncomfortable at times. Uh, We pray now, as we sit under this teaching from Jesus, that your light would shine Into the darkness of our hearts where it's needed, and that it might cast that darkness out. I ask that you'd please use this time to transform us to be people of the light. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The theologian John Stott described the Sermon on the Mount as the most famous sermon ever preached and the least applied. And I think he's right. I think he he kind of nailed it with that. And I think we're going to start to notice how little this sermon is applied, really from this point on in our series in Matthew's gospel. Uh, at this point, Jesus kind of turns up the heat a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think what we are going to start to notice, friends, is a massive gulf between the people that Jesus calls us to be in passages like this one today and the people that we actually are i think we're going to start to notice that gap more and more and more over the coming weeks now it's not to say that you and i if we are christians that we are kind of doing the opposite of what jesus commanded here 24/7 that's not what i'm getting at it's rather just that we we don't obey jesus and his commands here to the extent that we ought to we obey jesus i think usually just you know to a degree Uh, I may be about to offend everybody in the room, and that's okay, but I would say that most Australian Christians are comfortably righteous, comfortably righteous. That is, you're a Christian, you know God's word is good, you know his commands are good, you know that you've been saved by grace, you know that Jesus wants you to grow in holiness, and so you're happy to obey him to a point. Uh, until it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable and still it starts to impinge on your freedoms a little bit. I think most comfortably righteous Christians have this attitude of kind of bare minimum obedience, bare minimum law keeping. What is the least I can get away with? It's that kind of attitude of a child eating enough mouthfuls of dinner, just enough to warrant getting dessert. That's our attitude. Uh, There's a famous story about an American evangelist from the 1800s, a guy called Peter Cartwright, and he was a Methodist circuit rider. If you don't know what that is, basically they were traveling preachers and they would go around on horseback, visiting all the towns in the Wild West, stopping, preaching a sermon and moving on, sometimes doing that up to 10 times a day. And so you had to be a pretty rugged individual to live that kind of a life. Anyways, the story goes, Peter Cartwright was in a town preaching one day, And a man who'd heard his sermon came up to him afterwards and wanted to kind of test the sincerity of Cartwright's faith. And so the man reached out and struck him across the cheek. Cartwright didn't flinch. The man geared up from the other side and struck the other cheek across Cartwright's face, and Cartwright stood there and took it. But the man reared back for a third slap, connected, and as he did, Cartwright landed a big uppercut right on the man's chin. And reportedly said, my Lord said nothing about turning the other, other cheek. (laughs) And, you know, technically uh, he's right. But that's not the intention of Jesus' words, is it? That mere obedience, how little can we get away with? We all know that game because we play that game, don't we, with Jesus? Jesus instructs us to tell the truth. And we say, that sounds great. I'm happy to do that, Jesus. I'll tell the truth. That's fine. Until the truth starts to make me look bad. And then I might skip a few details, might fudge it a little bit. But otherwise, I'll tell the truth. Tick, happy to do that one, Jesus. Jesus tells us, you've got to love other people. And we go, oh, that's fine. I'm happy to love. I'll love my friends. Really pleased to do that one, Jesus. Tick, happy to obey you there. Jesus tells us to be generous. And we look at our wallets and we think, well, I I probably give more than the average Australian, so I guess I am being generous. So tick, okay, obeying you there, Jesus. Isn't that us? Happy to be righteous, but only to the point where it makes us comfortable. No further. From this point on, verse 21 in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to take a sledgehammer to that kind of attitude of bare minimum obedience, Uh, You remember verse 20, Jesus has just told us, we saw last week, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, from this point on, Jesus is going to spell out for us what the kind of radical righteousness that his people ought to be living in looks like. And as we kind of look into these instructions, these commands from Jesus from this point on, it is really important that we all remember something at this point. It is important that we must remember that obeying Jesus' commands here does not earn us our salvation. Please remember that. If you remember nothing else from my talk tonight. Remember that salvation has come to you as a gift that you receive freely when you put your trust in Jesus. You do not earn it by your obedience. And so these instructions, they are not a means of salvation. What they are is a description of the life that you ought to live if you've received salvation, if you are already a member of Jesus' kingdom. And I hope that you will see that these commandments are an invitation from Jesus into a beautiful blessed life. There are two aspects that we're going to look at in this passage of the the radical righteousness that Jesus expects of his followers. Firstly, we're going to see from verse 21, Jesus gives us the instruction to pursue peace. Pursue peace. Jesus starts by picking up on the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Read verse 21 with me. You have heard it said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus is kind of starting by taking a bit of a swipe at the Pharisees. They're the ones who've told the people about the commandments of God. You've heard it from them, and Jesus is going to start to undermine the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. The issue with the Pharisees' interpretation of this command was that the Pharisees would say, well, we know that God doesn't want us to murder. Well, I haven't done that, so God must be pleased with me. Tick that bare minimum law-keeping kind of experience. You remember the the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee who goes up to pray and says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like these other men. That's the problem with the Pharisees' kind of attitude. They followed the letter of the law so that they could feel good about themselves in comparison to other people. And it's really easy to fall into that kind of way of thinking, isn't it? to to watch the news, read the newspaper, scroll through your news feed and, and hear about all of the corruption in the world, to hear about the violence and the murder that happens on a daily basis and to feel sick in your stomach and think, oh, this world is just full of such awful people. It's very easy to point the finger at other people and feel good about yourself, isn't it? Trouble is that just as we are starting to do that, just as we are starting to justify ourselves, Jesus comes along with a right hook here in verse 22. He says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus says, You've heard the commandment about murder, yes, But do you understand that murder is not just this kind of one-off action? It's not some isolated event of abuse. Murder always starts somewhere much earlier. And the place that it starts is in the human heart. And so if you're angry with someone, that anger turns and festers into hatred. And that hatred becomes rage and malice. And malice means that you want to hurt that person and you want to get get them away from you, get rid of that person. And then some people in the world choose to act on that feeling. You see Jesus' point here, right? It's pretty obvious that the difference between murder and anger is only a difference of degree, not of kind. You get that? Murder and anger are of the same species, according to Jesus. And so there's no sense doing the Pharisee kind of thing of, of congratulating yourself, patting yourself on the back for being a good little lawkeeper just because you haven't murdered somebody. If at the same time you are harboring anger towards other human beings, you see, merely outward obedience to the letter of the law, it does not meet God's requirements for radical righteousness. If you feel contempt, towards another human being, if you look at another person and assume that they are worthless, you've broken the Sixth Commandment. Jesus goes on. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Have you ever hated someone? Do you know that feeling? Or... or That ill will towards another person, wanting the worst for them. Do you know what that's like? Maybe someone that you've worked with who has just made your life a misery and every time they walk past you, you feel that rage burning up and you think, I hate you. Have you ever harboured a a grudge against somebody? You held on to that pain and that hurt for years and years. Somebody who has done harm to you and you carry it around like an open wound that will not heal. You ever hated anyone? We live in a culture that makes it very easy to hold on to anger and to harbour hatred. In the book of the term that we're reading this term, Ten Words to Live By, which incidentally there's just a a few copies of that left. If you want to grab one tonight, it'll be your last chance to grab it before we run out. But in the book of the term, Jen Wilkin describes how in our world these days, There are people and there are institutions which basically exist for the purpose of fanning our anger. Uh, She describes them as anger merchants. She says this, daytime talk shows which air brawls to the delight of viewers, cable news networks fueling moral indignation, social media platforms happily rewarding vented anger with likes and shares. Our politicians forego civility for outrage and we choose a side and join in on the carnival of contempt. It's us versus them. We are the righteous and they, they are not merely the unrighteous. They are worthless. A carnival of contempt. If you're a follower of Jesus, he makes it very clear that you cannot participate in that culture. Disciples of Jesus can never look at another human being and conclude that they are worthless. That, that's not an option for a Christian. If we see people the way God sees people, we will look at every human being as incredibly valuable. And rather than harbouring anger and hatred towards them, we will be people who pursue peace. That's what radical righteousness looks like. Read with me from verse 23, therefore, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Maybe you're sitting here tonight listening to these words from Jesus. You're here in worship and you're realizing that there is someone in this church family, perhaps someone in this room who you feel hatred towards, who you're out of relationship with. If that's you, Jesus says, you've got to do something about that right now. You've got to pursue reconciliation with that person as far as it's possible and depends on you. Can I say, if that is you, if someone comes to mind as you hear Jesus' instructions here, please don't let this day end without doing something about that. Maybe you need to speak to that person after church. Maybe you need to reach out to them and ask for a time to talk to them and listen to them and ask for forgiveness from them and perhaps forgive them as well. Jesus is quite clear that that's an urgent thing you need to do. Look at verse 25. Jesus is instructing them to do it as quickly as possible. As soon as you realize there is a tension in a relationship, sort it out. Otherwise, it's going to fester and poison you. It's a big ask, isn't it? And there may be times when that's just not something you can do by yourself. You may need assistance in that. There may be a place for professional help in trying to reconcile broken relationships. You may need to just take some time out of a relationship to let the temperature drop a little bit before you fix things. But you must be committed to making peace with people. So don't feed your contempt. Don't participate in that carnival. Instead, commit yourself to always speaking well of other people, always thinking kind thoughts, even about the people who've hurt you, always seeing the good in other people. This is radical stuff that Jesus is calling us to, isn't it? Jesus is not satisfied with bare minimum law-keeping. Jesus wants more for you than simply to just be not a murderer, He wants you to be a peacemaker, to pursue peace with all people. And wouldn't that be a much more beautiful life than a life that we we carry around bubbling with hatred and anger all the time? Wouldn't that be a more blessed life? Jesus certainly says it's more blessed to be a peacemaker. Now, at this point, I'm guessing if you're anything like me, you are sitting there and feeling rather guilty feeling like you fall so far short of this standard that Jesus lays out for us. There is really no way, if you've got a shred of self-awareness, that you can hear Jesus' words here and think, oh, I'm doing a pretty good job of that one, nailing it. No, we know. We all know that we fall short. Uh, This past week in America, it was the Super Bowl. You know that. Uh, But one of the best parts of the Super Bowl are the advertisements that they show, the commercials during the halftime and all the breaks and that sort of thing. And advertisers pay big money to show their 30 or 60-second commercials during the Super Bowl. This year it was quite interesting. There was a Christian group who pulled some money together in order to show, I think, three ads across the course of the Super Bowl. Two 30-second ads, one 60-second ad. And it was estimated that it cost this group about $100 US dollars just for that airtime. The ad was fascinating. The one that they showed at halftime, it was a collection of still black and white images, images that looked like they were taken by photojournalists of people just displaying their anger and venting their anger towards one another. And the ad kind of picked up speed as it went, image after image after image. The ad was building to a crescendo while this, this music track played behind them whilst the singer in the music track would repeat, I'm only human. I'm only human, I'm only human, making excuses for this type of anger. And then at the culmination of this ad, the screen goes to black and it said this, Jesus loved the people we hate. And that's the end of the ad. That was quite a breathtaking kind of a moment in the midst of a spectacle like the Super Bowl, quite a thought-provoking PR campaign for Jesus. And the ad is spot on, I think. It has put its finger on something that is so relevant to our angry culture because Jesus is the only one who has perfectly loved all people, even the ones that we hate. In fact, more than that, Jesus is the one who gave himself up to murderous people in order to make peace between us and God. And so when we come face to face with our failings and Jesus' perfection and the gulf that exists between them, what must we do at that point? We must cling and turn to Jesus, mustn't we? The, The perfect, the righteous one. We must look to him and remember and thank God that it's his perfect righteousness that gives us a place in his kingdom, not our failed efforts, and, and as we come to Jesus, we ask again for his help and his forgiveness to be transformed into people who are more like him, people who love. Because being radically righteous like Jesus means that we will pursue peace with all people. That's the first aspect there. The second aspect of this righteousness that Jesus calls his people to is from verse 27 where he tells them to practice purity. Practice purity. Verse 27, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is now the seventh commandment. Jesus has moved on from the sixth to the seventh. And I'm assuming as we hear that commandment, we can all say amen to that. That's a good commandment, isn't it? It's wise. That's right. It's good. Thank God that he gave that commandment. We all know, and some of us will know much more personally than others, that adultery causes devastation, doesn't it? The, the betrayal of, of adultery just causes shockwaves of, of pain and grief and breakdown into families and into communities. Sadly, I think we live in a culture now that's not equipped to deal with that. Because we've almost normalized adultery. You know, the ethos, the sexual ethos of our time is follow your heart. And so if you are married and your heart leads you out of love with your spouse and into love with someone who's not your spouse, well, then who's going to hold you accountable? Who could blame you for following your heart into love, into that new relationship and breaking the commitment of marriage? Do you remember uh, back in 2015 when th- there was that scandal about that website called Ashley Madison when it had all of its user data leaked online one day? Ashley Madison is a website for people who are looking to organise a discreet extramarital affair. Slogan of the website is life is short, have an affair. No. One morning and the news broke, over 30 million Users had their names, their addresses, their messaging history, trying to set up all these mar- extramarital affairs leaked online by hackers. It was shocking. It was so unsettling that suddenly this, this hive of immorality that had largely been hidden was suddenly brought into the light for everybody to see. That Ashley Madison website uh, it didn't die when that happened. In fact, it's still going, and it's bigger than ever these days. Maybe that shouldn't surprise us because our culture just does not know what to think when it comes to sex and to marriage, does it? We live in a culture that is so over-sexualized now that we are just chasing our tails. You can't walk through a shopping center or turn on a television channel without being confronted and bombarded with sexually graphic material from advertisers who are trying to lure you to participate in their programs, buy their products, things that a generation ago would have belonged on the pages of Playboy and now just commonplace everywhere you look. This um, this may make you think that I'm just a grumpy old man, but over the course of this summer, Catherine and I, as we were taking our family to the beach, we began to reflect on how the standards for what is considered public decency these days have shifted so drastically, even just in the last 10 years. What used to be considered kind of acceptable attire for going to the beach nowadays would look modest in comparison. It tells you something, I think, about the way that our society is thinking about sex these days. Sex has become so commonplace. It has been used to publicize everything. And so we become so desensitized to sexually explicit material. And so here comes Jesus with this commandment. Do not commit adultery. And we know that he's asking for more than just mere obedience to that commandment. What do we do with that commandment as Christians in a culture like this? I think the danger, the tendency that we might have is to have that kind of letter of the law mentality about it, where we, you know, try and lawyer our way out of Jesus' commands about sex here. We're like Bill Clinton. You remember back in the 90s, he got caught having an affair and he went before the cameras and he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Well, it's kind of a half-truth, Bill. We do that, though, don't we? We think to ourselves, well, okay, don't commit adultery. I haven't jumped into bed with somebody who is someone else's spouse, so I've I've obeyed Jesus here, tick. Or we think, you know, Jesus never actually explicitly said anything about that thing that I do in private. He didn't address it directly. And so, well, I must be obeying Jesus on this one, right? Well, Jesus comes in with a left hook this time in verse 28, and he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The intention of the seventh commandment goes so much deeper than just merely outward behaviour. Jesus says, no, it's about your heart and your mind and the thoughts and the images that you allow to dwell there. You know, it's just like it was with murder and anger. Adultery is the fruit, but lust is the root. Lust is the real problem here. Uh, John Piper defined lust as Sexual desire minus holiness and honour. Sexual desire minus holiness and honour. Sexual desire is a good thing. It's a natural part of the way that God made us as human beings. But that desire, when you take away holiness and when you take away honour towards the other person and honour towards God, it is always wrong if you don't have those things. Sexual desire minus holiness and honour means that you look at other people merely as a means of your own sexual gratification. And so you end up dehumanising those other people. You view people as consumable for your enjoyment. And Jesus will not let his people treat other people as consumable. I mean, how unfitting is that for a Christian to treat another human being as a means of satisfying your appetites. That is not the self-sacrificial example of love that Jesus modelled for us when he died on the cross. Christian love serves the other person. Christian love holds the other person in honour. It gives to the other person. It doesn't take and demand from the other person. You know, that that is why Jesus goes to the topic of divorce in verses 31 and 32 at the end of this this section here. Uh, We are not going to spend time looking at those verses in detail today, but basically what they are, are an application of this principle. Uh, Jesus says in verses 31 and 32 that Christians don't approach marriage as disposable. Christians don't have the attitude of, I will be in this marriage as long as it is good for me and I can get something out of it. And then when that runs dry, I'm done and I'm out of here. We don't treat marriage like that as Christians. We uphold marriage as something beautiful. We don't treat it lightly. It's this kind of radical righteousness that Jesus calls us to in this passage that leaves No room for selfish gratification. It is so much more than simply avoiding adultery. It is an active practicing of purity. And the steps that Jesus outlines here in this passage show you just how seriously he takes this. From verse 29, read again. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now... I hope this doesn't need to be said, but please don't take this literally. (laughs) Jesus doesn't intend for people to really go around mutilating themselves here. That's not his point. Uh, Some people in the early church did take these instructions literally. You may have heard of a guy called Oregon, an early church father, decided to castrate himself as a response to these verses. Mistake, that one. Jesus does not want you to take this literally. His point is that you have to take lust seriously. The stakes are incredibly high, aren't they? I'm sure that you know as well as I do that many, many people have walked down that path of unrestrained sexual gratification and Jesus says that the destination at the end of that path is hell. So to state the obvious, you have to take lust seriously and fighting lust. You have to. If you have not thought about steps that you're going to take to protect yourself from that temptation, then you are setting yourself up to fail and you are putting yourself in danger. There are are so many common sense things that I hope many of you are already doing. Let me just run through quite practically some things that I think every Christian ought to at least think through. I think every Christian ought to think through where it is they are most susceptible to the temptation of lust. Uh, We are all wired differently, triggered by different things. For some people, it's a a different time of the day, earlier in the morning or later at night or when you're left alone or when you're tired or when it's your day off, whenever it is. Recognise when you are susceptible and be aware, be on guard during those times. Uh, You ought to think carefully about the locations that you visit and the things that you watch on TV or you read or the music that you listen to, which makes sexual purity difficult. And then you ought to choose to avoid those things for the sake of your soul. It is a small price to pay to miss out on a few bits of entertainment, isn't it, for the good of your soul? If you're married here, then it's good and right for you to have an honest conversation with your spouse about what kind of season of marriage you are in and whether perhaps a little bit too much relational distance has crept into your marriage that has left a foothold for the devil here. I want to say it is worth being proactive about having an accountability partner, someone that you can talk to and ask about your sexual purity. I personally meet up with a couple of friends of mine every month or two, and I've given those brothers permission to ask the most blunt and invasive questions of me that they are able when it comes to this topic. If you don't already, then for the love of God, put some pornography blocking software on your internet devices. If you are just not doing that, you are welcoming pornography into your home. Uh, I use the Covenant Eyes software. I've used that for many years and it's very good. I can certainly recommend it, but there's lots of good software out out there and it's not very expensive. Uh, Undoubtedly, one of the best things that you can do, the steps that you can take to be prepared to fight against lust is to spend time memorizing scripture. That's part of the reason why we are doing this together as a, a church, this term, because God wants us to fight temptation with the sword of his word. One of my personal favourite Bible verses that I have used to battle against lust over the years is from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When lust comes along, I don't want to see that because I want to see God, and so I pursue purity there. There are so many things that you can and should do to be safe, to take serious steps of obedience towards Jesus here. But I do want to say all of those things are good and wise and right, but unless you are working at growing in your love for Jesus, none of those strategies matter. Uh, The author C.S. Lewis said that lust is about desiring, it's not about desiring too much, it's about desiring too little, having too little of a desire for your God. Uh, John Piper, again, he said it better than I can. He said this in his book, The Pleasures of God. We must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust's pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and with threats alone, even with the terrible warnings of Jesus Christ, we will always fail. But we must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flickers of lust's pleasures in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. Very John Piper way of saying that You fight lust by putting your delight in Jesus, by seeing how wonderful Jesus is and fixing your heart and your mind on him, on finding your joy and your satisfaction in your saviour. When you do that, there will be no room left in your heart for those disordered loves. That is the key way that we fight for purity and practise it as Christians. Now, that sounds all well and good, please don't mishear me, I don't want to give you the impression tonight that that kind of a battle will be easy. It won't be. The truth is that every single one of us as Christians will continue to struggle with these things, with anger and with lust, every day of our lives probably, until we are in the presence of Jesus and perfected in glory. We will stumble and we will fall. We need to be ready for that. But with God's help, when we do, whether it's for the fifth time or the 50th time or the 500th time, with God's help, in those moments we can look to Jesus and we will find abundant grace for us in our time of need. It's so important to remember when we fail that Jesus' death on the cross has paid for all of our sins the sins that we committed before we became a Christian, those sins we just committed and those sins that we will commit in the rest of our life, that once-for-all sacrifice has paid for all of them. We must not forget that. I don't want to give you the impression that radical righteousness is easy, but, friends, I do want you to know that you really can grow in your obedience to Jesus. I want to leave you with some hope that that gulf between the comfortably righteous Christians that we too often are and the radically righteous Christians that Jesus calls us to be, that that gulf can get smaller with God's help. That's the key. We need God's help in this. That's why, as I finish tonight, I would like for us to ask for God's help in these areas. What I want to do is I want to give you a moment of quietness to pray yourself to God, to, to bear your heart before your holy God and to confess to him the times when you have looked at another image bearer with contempt and viewed them as worthless and harboured hatred and anger towards them and to confess those times when you've looked at another image bearer as a means of your own gratification I'm going to give you some time to bring those things before God. He already knows them, to confess them, and to ask for his help through Jesus to be transformed. I'm going to give you a minute to do that now, and then we're going to finish by reading the Ten Commandments together. So take a moment now in the quietness of your heart to bring these things before your God. Friends, can I ask you to please stand as we read the Ten Commandments together? Uh, They're going to come up on the screen. I will read the commandment and then we will respond with the words that are in bold. The first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Lord, have mercy on us. And incline our hearts to keep this law. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Honour your father and your mother. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. You shall not murder Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. You shall not commit adultery. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. You shall not steal. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbour. Lord, have mercy on us and write your commandments in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Amen.